Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Eric Cook. We are back to our discussion of the Hitchcock movies from the late 40s through the early 60s that define his American reflections. Today we're talking about Strangers on a Train, the Hitchcock movie from 1951 that broke his long series of flops. For four years in a row, Hitchcock had flopped, and it's a bit of a miracle that he even got a chance to make another movie. But this was a big success, and it started the great series of successes he had in the 50s. Eric, hello, thank you for joining me again. This series has been a delight and glad we get a chance to do another one. After Psycho, The Birds, Rope, now we talk about Strangers on a Train. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, Titus. I'm glad to be part of this discussion again and covering one of my favorite films. I first bumped into, I think it's 1987 comedy, Throw Mama from a Train, which came out when I was 11 <laughs> years old. I loved that movie as a kid, and it led me to Alfred Hitchcock, and it led me to this movie, and maybe surreptitiously it led me to these conversations with you, I don't know. I am a fan of the ridiculous comedies of the late 80s and early 90s, far be it for me to disapprove. <laughs> a benediction, I'm we glad. would call it. Ah, uh, well, there we go. I don't have to go to confession for that one. So, <laughs> but it is a great movie, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's always a pleasure to talk Alfred Hitchcock with you. So, this film's got lots of interesting things, and I'm looking forward to this conversation this afternoon. I came to this movie from the writer's perspective. This was the last Hollywood script penned by the great Raymond Chandler, mm. the premier American noir crime fiction writer. And it was at the same time the first adaptation of a Patricia Highsmith story who authored phenomenally successful stories, starting with mm-hmm. the talented Mr. Ripley. She introduced a new era to American crime writing where the bad guy gets away with it. Yes. Of course, that was changed for the movies because Americans had a bit more sense so far as uh, their consumption of crime fiction went in those days. Still, it is a very interesting connection between Chandler Mm -hmm. Hitchcock and Patricia Highsmith. Strangers on a Train is, in fact, her first screen credit. Yes, her first full-length novel as well. A novel that gets some truncation in its transformation, as typically happens from book to screen, but I think with some judicious and interesting changes led by Hitchcock, who did not get along with Raymond Chandler in the process, and in fact they parted on very acrimonious terms. Chandler seems to have parted with everyone on very accurate terms. (laughs) On the other hand, he was a drunkard, so he was not all bad. We have to (laughs) give him (laughs) Keep things in perspective. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But you're right about this. Chandler looked down on the story. He thought it was somewhat silly, trite, and he wanted to insist on characterization, whereas Hitchcock, I think rightly, insisted on what this movie means about America. It is Mm -hmm. the movie that focuses the action on Washington, D.C., on a senatorial family, and in contradistinction with it, the sleepy town of Metcalf out in Maryland, a commuter's ride away from Washington. Yes, we have an interesting cast of characters. And again, we recently talked about uh, Hitchcock's unsuccessful film, Rope, that we both admire. And Hitchcock brings back one of his leading actors from that, and Farley Granger, who plays a tennis pro, Guy Haynes, on the make, also on the make with the senator's daughter. 
Farley Granger had a certain look about him. You would just cast him in thrillers naturally. He seems mm-hmm. guilty or at least troubled, <laughs> easily frightened. Maybe he has a certain gas, quality. Yes. You don't necessarily want him thrown in jail, but you could enjoy seeing him thrown in jail. <laughs> he squirms <laughs> under the camera. Handsome, leading man material almost, but there is something about him that unlike the leading men of Hollywood from the 30s and 40s, he doesn't seem impervious quite. He seems like you could bully him and it tempts you to do so. And Hitchcock certainly enjoyed this. As you pointed out, he is the most obvious connection between rope and strangers on a train. In both cases, he is a character with certain guilty secrets, the burden of which he cannot bear. And in that sense, he's also a great connection for the audience. He witnesses Mm -hmm. things we witness. He has to deal with a problem we have to deal with, and which does not admit of a clean solution. He sells the thriller. He convinces you. You don't want him to end up in the chair. But you know he can't quite get away with it either. He's not entirely innocent. And that's where we sit as an audience. Or there would be no thrill. And the beautiful thing is, just like in Rope, he's manipulated by a much stronger personality. Bruno Antony is the character name played by Robert Walker in his last completed screen role before his death. Hitchcock, in one of his great turnabouts, takes an actor, in this case Robert Walker, who was famous for playing decent small-town guys who are going off to make good and did a couple of war pictures in the 40s, and he turns him into this really creepy villain. A delicious part that Walker just walks away with his picture. I mean, he owns the show and makes the film his own. And even though he is psychotic or at least sociopathic and evil, we often end up rooting for Bruno Antony, the character, most famously in the great lighter when it gets dropped into the grating at the Metcalf, yes, the little sleepy community town. There. You, yeah. You're striving along with him to get back that piece of incriminating evidence that's supposed to yes. serve his purpose. He wants to frame some. He is like the director, a man with a plan. He wants to Mm -hmm. put something over on somebody. And you're right, it is a very good story for Robert Walker. Every gesture of the degenerate aristocrat, every facility with humor and conversation among the respectable classes where he has to get under people's skins, shape Mm -hmm. their sense of self-possession and involve them somehow in his dubious, guilty and resentful personality. He pulls that off very, very well. Of course, the audience is in a certain mixed position here. On the one hand, we don't want this guy to get away with it. On the other hand, the stuffy, successful Washington, D.C. people he is involved with, the people whom he unnerves, they're not our people exactly. They deserve to be disturbed. Yes, yes. And there's a great moment. I think you really see this contrast, this up-and-coming tennis star guy, Haynes. He is married to a rather unpleasant woman, his wife, played by Laura Elliott. And he's after Ruth Roman, who's the daughter of the senator in Washington, D.C. And he's implicated in the death of his wife. At this point, the senator's family just knows that the wife has been murdered and that he would naturally be a suspect because they're having a rather messy divorce and they've had a rather public argument. At first, the senators all, well, we don't really have to worry about this. We'll just see it through. Alfred Hitchcock's daughter plays the younger daughter of the senator and says, well, daddy doesn't mind a little scandal. But later in the plot, when it becomes quite serious and it looks like the boyfriend is going to be implicated, well, now we see that the father really is very uncomfortable with this whole deal and wants to get this wrapped up as quickly as possible. And so even in his personal relationships, these are not our people. 
we probably should lay out the plot a little bit clearer for our audience. Yes. So by accident, two men seem to meet. One played by Farley Granger, an honest American coming from a small town. He's a senator's staffer on Capitol Hill and at the same time a tennis amateur with great prospects. The other man is a degenerate aristocrat played by Robert Walker delightfully. They are established in the opening sequence of the movie. They are both coming out of taxis at Mm -hmm. Union Station in DC, heading for the train. And their social class and their character is established by their shoes and their trousers. Yes. Farley Granger is a respectable man. He wears a certain dark tweed, the shoes you'd expect with that, formal, nothing stuffy, nothing dressy. Not so our man Robert Walker, who Mm -hmm. wears loud, flamboyant, two-toned derbies and the pinstripe suit. There is their class difference and their character difference established. Then they meet on the train. Yes. And when we follow them, this is brilliantly by Hitchcock. We get this great framing shot with the Capitol Dome in the background of the station and they get out of their taxis and we never see their faces. We follow their feet onto the train and then we follow the feet as the camera pans along the tracks as we go out. And then finally their feet bump each other and then finally the camera comes up and we see their faces. It's just wonderful cinema. Yes, indeed. Then it turns out this is not an accident, just like the director planned it. Our evil man, he has planned it too. He wanted to meet this man whom he is following obsessively and whom he in certain ways admires and in other ways resents because he is up and coming. Mm -hmm. He seems to be going somewhere, doing something with his life. But there is something in the way, something in his past, a wife who traduced him and who is utterly despicable. And so this degenerate would-be aristocrat proposes a terrifying scheme. They should exchange murders. They should murder for each other in order to escape the police. And this is where we get the strange intellectual core of the murder story. Robert Walker has two things on his mind. One of them is that the police catch you, however perfect your murder, because they'll figure out your motive. Now, that is a rationalistic account of murder. You kill people if you have an interest in it, if you profit by their deaths. Now, that's pretty scary, but at the same time, rationalistic. And of course, the problem with this rationalism is that it doesn't give an account of the desire to murder, of the anger, the resentment, the dark passions. This comes out in another way. Our aristocrat, idle as he is and furious, talks about speed, movement, and freedom. He -hmm. says he has done a reckless thing, driven a car at 150 miles per hour, blindfolded. Now that has to be a transparent lie, being that driving 150 miles an hour in 1950 is, to say the least, unlikely. The (laughs) next thing he says is he flew on a jet plane. That's slightly less bold of a lie. It's even possible there did exist jets in 1950, but it was nevertheless a revolutionary act. It was very risky. And this man seems like no Chuck Eager. The third thing he mentions is he wants to take a rocket to the moon. Yes. And you see in this not just the violence of the motion and the revolutionary character of the new means of transportation, but there is also a certain all-American desire to escape your situation. Mm -hmm. 
the evil man wishes to escape his wealthy aristocratic family because he has a father he resents is a burden the father is disappointed even disgusted with him and the young man can't take it anymore but we also see this with our Farley Granger character who wishes to escape his life with the wife who traduced him and the little town he's from for the respectability and the prestige of Washington DC where as a young staffer and hot athlete up and coming in the tennis circuit he can hope to marry into a senatorial family but it turns out neither of them is exactly able to leave his past behind this is very true and the scene that plays this out is over a meal right and we see this often in hitchcock these interesting dinner time conversations one of the things of the one in psycho as well we meet with people over meals to discuss things and develop relationships and Farley Granger's character realizes that Robert Walker's character, he's got his psychological issues and is going to break away from him. But I want to go back to something you said, too. Bruno, Robert Walker's character, not only has issues with his father, but he also has a rather interesting relationship with his mother. And one of the things about him that I think is also indicative of Hitchcock's critique of American society at this time, too, is Hitchcock said that you could often get to the center of a character by the foods that they ate. And Robert Walker's character in the dining scene has lamb chops, french fries, and chocolate ice cream. And Hitchcock remarked that, you know, probably in his mind, that character wanted to eat the ice cream first because of his childlike qualities. And you can also see that somewhat in his desire to take this rocket ship to the moon, too. There's almost a fantasist element, which when we do meet Robert Walker's mother, we discover he's quite the mama's boy, and that she protects him from his father, who is on the verge of having him committed. There's a phone call scene in the background. You can barely hear it in the dialogue, but the father says there's been a hit and run involving him, and he wants to have this character put away. And so Bruno Antony's his desire for murder and, and of his father, who wants him to be very respectable and take the 805 bus to work every day. When he says, look, my father's got all this money and they live in this brawling sort of 1920s Tudor mansion. Why does he expect me to work? Well, it doesn't make any sense to me. And yet in this conversation with Farley Granger, the one thing that Bruno says, well, I'm not like you, Guy. You've done things. And so, as you said, this is built in resentment as well against Guy Haynes because Guy Haynes has done some things. He's a very good tennis player. And Bruno wants that sort of recognition, but he's not willing to do anything to achieve it. Yes, that's true. You're right that there is a lot in the upper-class Anthony family that's worth mentioning. The father does want to turn the child into a kind of American story, that is to say the self-made man. He wants mm -hmm. the son to define himself by being hardworking and providing for himself. Of course, the question is, why are you a hard worker? Presumably, you work hard and are productive to get the good things that you arrive at that way. Now, if you have them provided for you, why would you do that? Yeah. It is trickier than it would seem. There is a problem built into the American self-made man idea. What if you succeed? What then? And it turns out that the parents of the degenerate aristocrat played by Robert Walker, they're quite clueless about this. The father has recourse to this kind of moralistic American idea. Had he brought up the boy to hardship, self-reliance, working for himself, respectable work, that might have been different. It's too late when he's turning 30. Mm -hmm. As for the mother, she's a strange character that seems only dimly aware of how monstrous her child is, and at the same time, in relation to this dim awareness of the evil in him, overly protective. Maybe what's wrong with him to some extent is her fault. 
We see yes. very little of her, but there are two crucial scenes that involve her, aside from the general fact that she obeys him in his schemes. One of them is fairly late in the movie, when the daughter of the senatorial family Farley Granger's character is set to marry into, comes to visit her and warn her, as one decent woman to another, about what's wrong with her boy, only to find a deaf ear. The other one, much earlier in the movie, shows her as a painter. She paints mm-hmm. a monster and calls it St. Francis. Yes. And that shows that this woman is deranged in certain ways she's not aware of, precisely because she lives in this fairy tale world where the monster she has for a son whom she's protecting is in fact a good boy. Yeah, it's very interesting. Even Bruno sees the horror in this monstrous painting, and Dimitri Jomkin gives us this horrible crashing chord when we get the reveal of the painting. It's one of the great comic moments in the first third of the picture. Yeah, there's definitely an implication that if there's mental illness, the the railroad, so to speak, runs from mom to Bruno, I think. There's definitely a disconnection there on many levels. And after their dinner, Bruno has, in his mind, entered into a pact with Guy Haynes, with Farley Granger, to do this double murder. Farley Granger thinks he's just being very polite and dismissing the slightly off-kilter person he shared lunch with, little suspecting what's about to happen to him. Then we move into the world of Metcalf, the home of Miriam and a former home of Guy. And Miriam, we discover, works at a music shop that sells presumably sheet music, also records, and has these wonderful soundproof booths where Farley Granger confronts his wife and gives her a sizable cash payoff in order to initiate the divorce proceedings that she wanted because we've discovered that she's also pregnant with another man's child at this point. Miriam, who's very manipulative and scheming, has decided that now that she knows where Guy Haynes is headed, that she's not going to have any of that. She's going to glom onto him and ride his tennis-playing train of fame and will not grant him the divorce, in which he says, I'm so angry I, I could strangle her, right? Well, that's exactly what Robert Walker is going to do. Yes, the sleepy town of Metcalf includes this lower-class woman who is nevertheless as evil and scheming as the Robert Walker character. Mm-hmm. As you said, she was working in a music shop, and her ambitions go way beyond this. She was a flighty woman, but also she is aware, like Robert Walker is, of respectability and what it means, just as much as the upper-class senator is but of course with a very different interest. After he commits the murder of this woman, the Robert Walker character explains to Farley Granger, what are you going to tell the cops? How would it look to them? Mm -hmm. You had an interest in this. It was you who profited by the death. Who would believe you? What would it look like to anybody else? This is also the woman's argument. What would it look like to anybody else? Nobody else would know that I introduced you that this is another man's child. You would look like you're kicking out a pregnant woman. This is how you can turn respectability against the respectable. And this is part of the great art of Hitchcock and the reason he uses, both morally and philosophically, the murder mystery genre. He wants to point out that respectability blinds the respectable, that innocence blinds the innocent as to their weaknesses and where they may receive blame. And this opens up this great distinction between what it means to be innocent and what it means to be respectable. As we already mentioned, the senator, full of gravitas as an American senator should be, 
tells the young man, Oh sure, you've been suspected of murder as the husband of a woman who just turned up dead, but you shouldn't quit your tennis playing, because after all, you're not guilty, you have nothing to hide, as though a man who hears of the brutal murder of his wife could take no suffering from that, no psychological drama, except if he should turn out to be guilty. To Mm -hmm. pretend to be innocent, therefore, is revealed as the core of respectability. The guilty part is the wicked wife who ends up murdered and her murderer who plans to profit by it in an indirect way. This is what they have learned, that respectability is only a pretense of innocence. There are a couple of other scenes where the degenerate aristocrat proves this. He, at some point, shows himself in his milieu, in his social environment, first at the tennis club and then at Mm -hmm. a party for these upper-class personages. Even there you see the class distinction. The Farley Granger character appears in black tie, what Americans would call a tux. Not so these upper-class characters like the Robert Walker character. They are in white tie, in tails and bow tie and so forth. They're um, old money. And in both cases, the Robert Walker character wants to impress people with his pedigree. In the one case, by speaking French to awe the Americans there. And in the other case, by persuading aristocratic women that they have plotted murder in their imaginations, in their hearts, in their silly ways. And that they are easily discomfited, but also excited by the Mm -hmm. conversation of an attractive young man who has outrageous extreme ideas. If they were as innocent as their respectability pretends, they wouldn't be impressed or interested by this unusual and, it turns out, degenerate man. And, of course, he, in a moment of insanity, tries to strangle an old woman. These people, of course, do not call the cops or make any gestures that might bring a scandal. Because in the right social classes, you do not attract attention as much as the low-class scheming woman wants to get in the papers or get some kind of fame, these upper-class people, whether they are guilty or innocent, want to stay out of the papers. They don't want to attract the wrong kind of attention. And so you see there Hitchcock's reflections on the effects of social class, and the settings he chooses are important for that. On the one hand, you have DC, where you only see attractive mansions, the Washington Monument with the Lincoln Memorial, There's an extended scene at the Jefferson Memorial, which was then completed and was the last of the great neoclassical edifices in the public architecture of Washington, D.C. You also have uh, some scenes at the Capitol and, of course, shots of the Capitol Dome by day and by night. This is Washington, D.C. at its most imposing. The majesty of public America is on display, if at a distance. You cannot bring murder, which is a low thing, so close to these high things, but they do coexist in some kind of proximity. Over against this is the small town of Metcalf. You only see small streets, a small train station, or a music shop, and of course the amusement park that is so important to the plot. In the sleepy town of Metcalf, a commuter rides away from Washington, the lowbrow people turn out to make a sport, as it were, an interest of a murder scene. Mm-hmm. The park is out of commission for a while, or some part of it is, because it's now a crime scene and it's, in a certain sense, polluted, avoided. But at the same time, people are curious about it. They want to see, where was that woman strangled? 
you can't take it out of people that they're curious about this, just like we cannot take it out of ourselves that we're so curious about the murder mystery. This is the audience that Hitchcock is attracting. He's not trying to get senators and their staff or families to watch this movie. He's trying to get the great audience of America to watch it. And of course, everyone did as we do now. It was a big success for him. And that shows you another version of what it means to be middlebrow. It is not the majesty of the public monuments of America or of the highest offices elected in the land. It is not exactly the lowbrow murder either. It is something in between, like the Farley Granger character is in between. He comes from Metcalf, but he wants to make it in DC. He has moral rather than intellectual virtues. He's a hot athlete coming up on the tennis tournament as an amateur, as they were called in those days. But on the other hand, he has fallen in love with and wants to marry a senator's daughter. He has a certain ambition. He wants to succeed, which means also move up the social scale. He dresses a certain way and he behaves himself in a certain way in that company of the upper classes, but at the same time he cannot fully leave behind him his past. And that's one version of what the middle classes are like and what middle brow as the culture typical of and needful for the middle classes, what that is like. And I think one of the things that also bridges this gap is that we have in the murder scene, which takes place at this tawdry sort of carnival fairgrounds, right? The Miriam character is there with two boyfriends, not just one. You know, she can't just run around with one man on Farley Granger. She's got to have two. And into this, she's followed by Robert Walker's character. Uh, He's determined to murder her. And they go out to this tunnel of love, and appropriately, Walker boards a boat that bears the title of Pluto on it, God of the Dead, and uh, follows them through this tunnel onto an island where people obviously, you know, have connubial gatherings in the dark and sort of make out and so forth, the sort of lover's lane on an island. It's there that he approaches her. Now, through the uh, ensuing scenes, he has been flirting with her in a very sexually predatorial way, considering what's going on in the world today. Um, he looks like a wolf. He does. He's he's there. He's going to eat her, right? And there's a lot of eating. He eats popcorn, she eats uh, ice cream, and talks about eating hot dogs and so forth. And in the background, we hear the ambient music from the various carnival rides. But there's one tune in particular, and I think this does get back to this idea, uh, the social in-between that we hear repeatedly from the merry-go-round, the carousel that Miriam and her quasi-boyfriends ride, and Bruno Antony, Robert Walker character, joins in. And they're playing a tune from the 1890s, one of the tunes out of the Great American Songbook, and that's The Band Played On, published, I think, in 1895-96, and was a big hit. It was one of two big waltz hits that dealt with the social milieu and the sexual tensions of the waltz itself and of dancing and then being out. Followed the earlier hit, After the Ball, by Charles K. Harris, which is probably musically the more important of the two, but popularly, the band played on had great longevity. It had been re-recorded as late as 1958. I think Guy Lombardo and his Canadians did a very successful version. So it would have been in the public conscience in 1950 when the film came out, not just because it's a 60-year-old American song standard, but because it had just been re-recorded. They not only listen to this in the background, but they end up singing along with it on the carousel ride. Waltzes have an interesting place sociologically and musically in the history of the development of popular music. 
and this was well known, and I'm sure Hitchcock knew this. Waltz is developed out of the Austrian Lendler, which is a folk dance. If anybody's seen uh, The Sound of Music, there's a scene where Maria teaches the captive to remember how to dance at Lendler. Lendlers were certainly used. You can hear them in the uh, third movements of late Haydn symphonies, most famously Beethoven used it for the third movement of his eighth symphony. And from the Lendler, the waltz develops a dance in three or four time. Of course, the scandal of the waltz was that people actually embraced each other, and the partners faced each other, and you danced exclusively with the same partner throughout the dance. The Lendler was like most contra dances or folk dances, where people are in groups and trade partners and come and go with relatively minimal contact. The waltz changed all of that, and the waltz was a very scandalous piece of music in the 1850s and 60s when this transition from being a folk dance to being more intimate couples dance developed. And for most middle-class Americans, the waltz continued to be in this nebulous area. It was associated with sort of upper-class decadence, aristocratic Viennese, social life that was just a bridge too far until the 1890s. And in the 1890s, in part, I think, because a number of songs that deal with both the sublimated sexual issues of the dance itself, but then try to domesticate it and make it okay. And the lyrics that the band played on, which if you look at the cue sheet for the film, shows up more than any other piece of music, including the original pieces Dmitry Chomkin wrote for the score. And we know that Hitchcock had already selected this piece. So this was part of Hitchcock's scheme. And so Casey would waltz with a strawberry blonde and the band played on. He'd glide across the floor with a girl he adored, but his brain was so loaded it nearly exploded, right? And the poor girl would shake with alarm. And basically, the other thing is that Casey is a manipulator. Casey, if you read all the verses of the song, Casey is the owner of the dance hall. And the reason the band plays on is because all the other dancers have gone to supper. But he has singled out his victim and he keeps the band playing so that the two of them can dance alone. The other piece of music that you hear in the background at the carnival is Babyface. It's a 1926 jazz standard. I think Harry Asks was the composer. And again, it had been re-recorded in the 40s as well and had entered the popular charts a second time over at that time. But I suspect that Hitchcock wasn't thinking in this case so much of the song, where the lyrics of the song have little or nothing to do. They're pretty uh, tame and not particularly interesting. But it was also the basis of a famous film Babyface 1933, a Barbara Stanwyck picture, which really pushed the Hollywood pre-code era to its limits. The Barbara Stanwyck character is a sexual climber. She's been abused. Her father's a speakeasy owner. The film revolves around her getting a boost up by a friend of the family in Erie, Pennsylvania, who's an amateur philosopher and expert on Nietzsche, who convinces her that she doesn't want to be a slave and that she should use her sexual power to achieve the ability to climb socially. The film was very famous. It had to be censored, and it really brought the production code into effect. It was the last straw for most people. Also an early John Wayne film. Barbara Stanwyck's character does climb the social ladder using her sexual allure. And so it becomes a parallel to what Miriam is trying to do here. So we've got these two pieces of popular music that we hear several times over and over again, including up and through and during the murder scene. On the one hand, we've got this climber, Barbara Stanwyck wannabe in Miriam, but she's going to be destroyed because she's trying to transgress too much, I think, her middle brow milieu, and it's not going to be allowed. And Bruner, this sort of effete European wannabe aristocrat, is the destruction. It's as if the waltz bites her in the end and gets her. You know, you can't escape what the waltz really is. But those are my two cents on the choices of the popular music that are used diegetically in the film at that point. 
Yep, Dimitri Tiomkin, of course, was great. I think he started working with Hitchcock in 43 on Shadow of a Doubt, but it may be before that they had their relationship. And, of course, he is famous as the composer for a lot of the Frank Capra movies, yes, starting yep. in 37 with Lost Horizon, but also You Can't Take It With You, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. The first time Dimitri Tiomkin was nominated for an Oscar, and mm-hmm. then meet John Doe, and eventually It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. He scored all these things as well as any number of other movies. Probably his most famous for High Noon, which won him two Oscars, both for score and for song. And he was nominated more than a dozen times for the Oscars. And he seems to have worked well with Hitchcock precisely because he could call on these kinds of melodies that had a certain resonance with the story, Mm -hmm. made certain comments on characters on the scene that help along the movie construction just like the director of photography, the famous cinematographer Robert Burks, another Mm -hmm. man who worked a lot with Hitchcock. They must have made a dozen movies together, maybe more. I confess the famous Catholic drama in Quebec with uh, Monty Clift, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and He's the Man Who Shot Vertigo famously. So Mm -hmm. Hitchcock could call on these great artists, whether it's directors of photography or composers, to get his vision across and that he could make these kinds of stories that at once hold the attention of the audience and give you certain things to think about, as you pointed out. And once you start thinking about, okay, what songs are we hearing here? And this all comes together in the two great scenes at the fairground. First, as you pointed out, when the Robert Walker character murders the wife of the Farley Granger character, and then at the end, in the very famous merry-go-round scene, which was shot and scored both for suspense and for a certain kind of macabre comedy. Yes, that exactly. sequence is, uh, has spawned a thousand imitators. If you've ever seen a climax that takes place in a merry-go-round, that's where it comes from. This is, by the way, not from the Patricia Highsmith novel. This was taken from another murder mystery, which unfortunately I forget right now, but I will add it into the show notes so that the man gets some credit for what is a delightfully macabre American setting. I just reviewed for The Federalist, The Punisher, the Marvel Netflix show. Mm. Where do you think the last conflict takes place? On a (laughs) merry-go-round. It is still done just like Hitchcock did it in 1950. So the cinematography and the music lend more power to this combination of highbrow and lowbrow, such as classical music and the kind of history it comes from. And on the other hand, the thrills of the climax of a murder mystery. They're somehow brought together, and if you compare it with other attempts to do it, as I was mentioning this Punisher series, you can see how hard it is to put these things together and to make Mm -hmm. them stick. It's not just a work of art, but it requires a bit of genius, something that's far less reproducible than the scene itself. If you think about it as shootout, fight in a merry-go-round, you can do that any time of the week. But if you try to make it stick like he did in Strangers on a Train, it is much more difficult. And this is part of the unusual ability of Hitchcock to bring to bear in an original way things that come from Europe, things that come from America, highbrow and lowbrow things, in a way that focuses its attention on the audience. 
And of course, it is the climactic scene at the merry-go-round that for the first time really has a knowing audience. Everybody there is afraid for the terrible things happening on the merry-go-round. They are aware that this is very dangerous, that there are shots fired, police involved, there is something evil happening. That is what the audience is expected to be, to have a certain moral urgency. And this is very important to notice because Strangers on a Train is part of the series of movies we have been talking about in Hitchcock, where he establishes fairly clearly and fairly early on who is the murderer and who is the victim. He's no longer trying to keep us in suspense. The suspense comes from an entirely moral source and it has to do with our desire for justice and our fear that a guilty party, a wicked man, might get away with it. It no longer has anything to do with will he die or will he live. So also with this, Strangers on a Train takes about 100 minutes, but by minute 27, the murder has been committed. Through the two acts of the movie that take more than two-thirds, you know what's happened. You know what's at stake. You know who the murderer, who the victim is. The question is, as I suggested, one of respectability one of knowing what is at stake and the sociological identification of the audience and the lower class people of the small town of Metcalf is more important than it might seem at first but in the movie it comes some 10 minutes after a previous scene with a similar setting but a vastly different moral import the young tennis player played by Farley Granger has to play a tennis match Mm -hmm. and everyone in the audience is bobbing with the ball head left head right head left head right but for him the match has a certain existential importance he wants to win the game so that he can run away as quickly as possible to prevent being framed for a murder he did not commit the audience in that case is respectable people who would attend games at forest hills the only blue collar person in the cast a policeman actually tells farley granger in their collegial chummy way they have the same background I've never seen games there. I've always wanted to go. Now he has a chance to watch the games. Everybody there is respectable. And they have no idea what's happening. Uh, Of course, it has been pointed out time and again that if the man wanted to get away from the game, all he had to do is lose. There's nothing as quick as losing. Three quick straight losses and you're scot-free. You can run off and have your adventure trying to prevent being framed. But of course that misses the point. From the point of view of the Farley Granger character, there would have been even other solutions. The question is whether he can reconcile his desire not to be framed with his upper-class aspirations. He cannot abandon the game for that reason. He could have not have shown up at all in the first place if that's what was at stake. He has to show up, but that is a situation where we as an audience know how important the passage of time repeatedly signaled by the process of the game, by his losing a set in the game, and of course by the time he keeps looking at the clock. We understand the importance of all these things, not the audience of the tennis match. And that's a very important sociological observation there. The strange moral urgency of the murder mystery, even in the modified form we see in Hitchcock, comes from his insistence on having a middle-class all-American audience. By abandoning all the respectability that would seem to go with his great art, the great art of somebody like Tjomkit or the director of photography Bob Burks, and instead give you this kind of murder mystery with all its thrills, with its pace, with all the clever suggestions that make you fear and make you hope. 
somehow this is where Hitchcock decided to stake his claims and to show what is most important about the new situation of post-war America. I think of Strangers on a Train as a correlative to the movie we discussed last, Rope. They do not just have Farley Granger as a striving up-and-coming American. In this case, he is a tennis player. In the other case, he was a pianist preparing for a concert career that he has not stepped into and, of course, never will, given what happens. But Rope is an interior drama that's all about dialogue and all about the intellectual virtues and the monstrous vices they might lead to, including murder. Strangers on a Train, on the other hand, is all about the moral virtues. There is some dialogue, but not a lot, and there is nothing important being learned or unlearned. We establish early on that Farley Granger plays a man who is not too smart, but competent at his job as a staffer, a devoted lover and prospective son-in-law, and a bit of a sap. He's not smart enough not to be played around with either by his treacherous wife or by this man he meets on a train. He doesn't put two together much, not just because he's innocent, but also because he's not that bright. But of course, not being the brightest bulb in the room doesn't mean you should go to jail. It just means you're vulnerable in certain ways. And so this is a movie not merely about respectability, but also about the moral virtues. This is the kind of young man anybody would want his daughter marrying. And he's in certain ways the American young man. He doesn't have to be the brightest. He doesn't have to be a tech genius like we see in the movies nowadays. He has to be an upstanding citizen. He has to try hard, be somewhat successful, somewhat productive, and in important ways, loyal. And all these things he has going for him, but it's just not enough in a shocking situation. And he is confronted with this problem. What would it mean to meet a wicked man who is a good planner, who has a head on his shoulders you don't have? What do you do then? That is what the tension in the movie comes out of, and that is why Hitchcock insists so much on the signs of respectability in Washington, D.C. At the highest level, it's the symbols of majesty, the public architecture of the memorials and the great building of the Capitol. But it is also the respectable family of the senator and their party for the upper-class sort of people. It is also talking about having a home in Arlington, It is also going to Forest Hills, to the tennis game. All these things have to do with respectability and with an aspiration that I think most of us share. Nobody wants to be infamous. But it is simply not enough. And Hitchcock insists that there is an entire other part of America that you have to deal with. Living in a world where that just doesn't exist or isn't to be talked of wouldn't do. In a certain sense, the lower classes have more moral realism. They are willing to confront, although sometimes there's an eager audience of trifles and of gossip and of prurient interests, they are willing to confront the issue of murder and the passions that you could not show in a white tie outfit at a white tie party. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too. The one character that sort of is is Professor Collins, who is supposed to be an alibi with a Farley Granger character on the train the day of the murder as he's coming back to D.C., He's a professor of mathematics. He's given a talk on differential calculus, and he's been rewarded, and there's been some sort of celebration afterwards, and he's coming back a bit snookered, and he's singing the old folk song Bill Groggan's Goat on the way back. And that's great, you know. The thing I like about Hitchcock that reminds me of Shakespeare is Shakespeare never gives a character a bad line. Even if you have one line in a play, if you're in Shakespeare, it's going to be a good line. 
unless maybe it's Henry VI. But, you know, Hitchcock, all of his minor characters are always great little parts to be played. If you were any actor, you would enjoy playing those parts. And two things about this. Number one, at first, the senator is thrilled to know that there's a professor, an educated person. But then he hears he's from uh, Maryland Tech or something like that. Delaware Tech. Delaware Tech. Thank you. You can see his face drops like, oh, damn, that really doesn't cut it. (laughs) Yes. He hears there's a professor who might provide an alibi and he naturally answers. Harvard? Yes, exactly. Oh. This is great. And the only other time, you know, also going back to Rope with its focus on the intellectual is, of course, that uh, Bruno says, well, I've been to college. Sure, I've been to college. I've been to three of them. I've been thrown out of every one, right? There's a definite shift from sort of the intellectual virtues and vices to the moral here. You and I have discussed this before, and you, you're the great bit Agatha Christie, right? This idea that in, there's moral rot that's in everybody. And even though on the surface, and overall, Guy Haynes is a good character, as played by Farley Granger. But there is evil in all of us, and you know, we were not going to act on it, right? I mean, that's why he's so quick to dismiss Bruno Anthony Robert Walker's suggestions. We're not going to act on our occasional thought. The idea that, you know, temptation can land on your head, but you don't have to let it make a nest there, right? And this idea that you're not really going to pursue these things. And even James Stewart's character in Rope, the same idea. You know, I'm just pushing intellectual ideas to force you to think, never anticipating that anyone would take them serious enough to act on them. And so when someone like Guy Haynes, there's enough guilt in us that when that's exploited— we become quite vulnerable to someone like Bruno who's able to get under the skin and manipulate. When Bruno confronts and explains the guy that he owes him this, and of course we haven't actually said, I don't think, that the other murder is supposed to be Bruno's father. Hitchcock uses these great sort of, using the talents of Robert Burks with shadow and lighting and drawing on his experience in German expressionism. He'd worked with Murnau in the 1920s. And we see Bruno and Guy discussing this basically behind bars. They're sitting behind a a park fence across from his apartment. And we can see how someone like Guy Haynes is, in fact, entrapped by Bruno. As you said, he's not just entrapped on a moral level, but there's a big social component to all of this, too. And it's those details that Hitchcock puts in after the tennis match when he's trying to race back to prevent Bruno from planting the evidence, which is this dropped lighter, at the scene of the crime to frame him. We see the sun going down both in the background of the train that he's riding and also at the amusement park in this parallel sense of this passing of time. Hitchcock always, it's the small details that add up. Like you said, it's not just that someone can take these moments and film them and reframe them and remake them. Certainly that can be done. But even the lobster tie that Bruno wears in the first scene, Hitchcock designed that, right? And he placed the elements of garbage in the drain when Bruno fishes out. It's both the attention to detail on the Quintodian level, but also the big philosophical scheme you know, that he's painting. It's that combination that so few directors seem to have. They tend to have one or the other, it seems. And, you know, there are other great directors that do all of it, but Hitchcock it's certainly does it in a unique way. Yeah, in a certain way, when he just claimed his credit as director, he was selling himself short. Yes. And you're right about the tie. It is shaped for a claw. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> pay attention. And you're, of course, right about the great play of shadows that frames the shots where the Farley Granger character learns he has been entrapped in this murder and learns from the wicked character played by Robert Walker to think about himself as others would see him. He would stand to benefit from the murder. He would naturally be implicated. Whenever a wife dies, the cops have to look at the husband. Family turns out not to be as sacred as we might want it to be. Mm -hmm. 
he's forced to see this play on further and further. The senator who wants to help him out and puts all his trust in him, of course, but at the same time tells him, don't look shady, keep looking normal, (laughs) has two daughters. The elder daughter starts suspecting. And we see as an audience her Mm -hmm. development in her suspicions as she sees this wicked man, Anthony Bruno, and the way she confronts her intended, her betrothed, her husband-to-be, is how did you get him to do it? That moralistic reaction that you must be involved in this. There's a wicked man in your life. You must be guilty of it. She brings it with her. Then he is shocked at this. But at the same time, it is what he had feared all along, why he kept his secret. You cannot exactly take the moralism out of people. You're going through something bad. Probably you deserve it. It is part, in a certain way, of our Christian upbringing. Evil is, in some sense, God's testing your faith or punishing your wickedness. If bad things are there in your life, you must deserve it. Mm -hmm. This is the attitude she brings to it. On the other hand, there is the younger daughter, played by uh, Hitchcock's own daughter, Patricia. As elegant and beautiful and patrician as the elder daughter is, so is the younger daughter plain, bespectacled, and she has an all-American interest in the demotic. Mm -hmm. This reminded me of the great comedy The Philadelphia Story, in which the elder daughter is played by Catherine Hepburn, who is all of Bryn Mawr, all of modern woman progressive pretense and principle. Whereas the younger daughter plays a number made famous by Groucho Marx, Lydia or Lydia. She's an encyclopedia, <laughs> Lydia the Tattered Lady. Because the younger daughter loves the demotic. She's just mm-hmm. in love with America. So also in this movie, and it is this younger daughter played by Patricia Hitchcock, who says, well, you know, think about it from the cop's point of view. Of course they're going to suspect it. He was going to profit by it. And in a certain way, she does this in all innocence, but her senator father says, my dear, we will have murder at the doorstep. Let us not bring it into the living room. (laughs) (laughs) There's a certain assumption of aristocracy. You can keep the facts of life at the door. Yes. (laughs) This brings me to an anecdote about Hitchcock. Patricia Hitchcock said that during the setting of the film, when they were doing the amusement park sequences, at some point her father said, I'll give you a hundred bucks, just get on the Ferris wheel and ride up there. She was afraid of heights, of course, was the point of the bet. And once she got there, he had the man running the machine stop it and kill the lights. Just for a few seconds, but enough to put fear into her. And she called it sadistic. There's some truth to that, but I believe that is in essence what Hitchcock movies are about. You have to be Uh, tempted into it, but you have to like it. And then at the crucial moment, he scares the bejesus out of you in a certain way to bring you to face something essential about yourself. These respectable upper class personages are not the only victims of moralism. They're not the only people who want to blame bad things on the victims rather than the perpetrators. And of course, as with the character played by Farley Granger, we're not satisfied to be innocent. We want to be socially successful. That is to say, we are not satisfied to be good. We want to be seen to be good as well and to profit by it. That is the moral core of the story. Had the Farley Granger character been satisfied to be scapegoated just to tell the truth and to see right done, at least in part, none of this needed to have happened. But he's not Jesus Christ. None of us is. We would rather get away from the uglier parts of life Nobody wants to ascend that cross and be nailed to it and be spat upon and stabbed with a spear. 
if I could pick a, a small bone of contention with you about that uh, Patricia Hitchcock quote in one interview I saw her that she never said that it was sadistic that she was left up there. She said that was misquoted by lots of other people who've also spun the story that he left her up there for a long amount of time. What she said was sadistic. He never paid her the money. <laughs> <laughs> that even fits better with the theater goer. Yes, you like the indeed. movie or not, you're not going to get your money back. That's right. <laughs> Those are sunk costs and buyer beware. <laughs> Very good. Well, Eric, thank you for joining me again. This is our fourth Hitchcock podcast, and let us do more when we have a chance. This is great stuff to work with, and hopefully we, we can find some way to bring this back and to bring a kind of reflection to it that corresponds with the middle class identity of Americans as an audience and the middle brow identity of Hollywood cinema. I agree. I think what our culture needs is a good, healthy dose of mid-century middle brow in, in its virtues and its vices both. And yeah, I have been thoroughly enjoying getting the opportunity to watch some new Hitchcock films that I'd never explored before and rewatch old favorites and uh, talk about the music with you. I think at some point we've got to talk about Throw Mama from the Train and uh, Mel Brooks's High Anxiety, the great Hitchcock parody. <laughs> So <laughs> it would we be will that's when we're, when we're done with Hitchcock. Right, when we're done with Hitchcock, we parody, do so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to at some point too. I think uh, my interest in cinema, a lot of it has to do with silent film. And as I watch some of these Hitchcock films with new eyes or ones I haven't seen before, the thing that strikes me is you know directors like Hitchcock and William Wyler and and the whole host of greats from the 40s and 50s. They're coming out of a long career from the silent era on and developing skills that I think no filmmaker today can do. And so it's been a great, great ride so far exploring these films with you. And I really appreciate uh, being included in the project. Always a pleasure, Eric. And let's do this again soon. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.